This is episode 17 of the Progression Health Podcast, and I'm here with a researcher, Kate Dawson. Kate, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, okay. Uh, Thanks, Ross, for having me. Um, My name is Dr. Kate Dawson. I work for the Active Consent Program in the School of Psychology. Uh, Finished my PhD about two years ago that focused around pornography and sex education. I'm currently working on developing a online sexual media literacy intervention for teenagers, but a lot of my work focuses on consent interventions as well um, and looking at kind of developing large scale studies to look at sort of experiences of consent or sexual violence in the general population among young adults. Um, My background is in sex ed, so I worked as a sex educator for six or seven years, I think, seven years maybe. so yeah, that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. Very good. So what initially led you to this area of research? It's uh, not the kind oh. of the common path in, in, in academics. Yeah, I suppose not. Um, well, my undergrad, I did uh, I focus primarily on European law in UL and really found like it was just not for me at all. I completely disengaged from it. I wasn't interested in it whatsoever. Um, but as part of co-op, like this placement that you get to do when you're in UL, I got to go to Ghana for six months. And I, the village that I was working in, there were really high rates of um, HIV in the population. And there were also loads of um, teenage pregnancies. So like for a lot of the girls, most of them wouldn't get to what we would call maybe third year in secondary school um, because they would get pregnant and then they'd, they'd have to leave school, whereas all, most of the boys would stay on. Um, so I start. I became interested in that, and I wanted. I started kind of doing like um, sex education discussion groups after school, and making like with with the girls and getting them aware of you know a lot of them didn't didn't really know how they could get pregnant either. Um, so I started doing kind of teenage pregnancy awareness and HIV prevention workshops there, and realized that I really loved it. I loved just working in that area, so I came back after that and then went on to the master's in public health or in health promotion in NUIG and had no real intention actually of doing a PhD but I emailed somebody saying that I was kind of interested in for my master's research I did a study on the link between porn use and genital self-image so how much porn you watch how does it make you feel about your genitals um I was really interested in that so I emailed my who ended up being my PhD supervisor to be like, oh, I'm kind of interested in sexual health. I know you're doing some research in psychology. Is there any way, you know, is there any space for me as a research assistant? And then Paul Driggs said, you know what, there's actually a PhD deadline um, or application deadline in two days if you want to put an application together and put it in. So I did and not thinking that I would get it at all. And I got it. So here I am. Yeah, six years later, having finished my PhD, I'm now my second postdoc, and uh, yeah, loving it. Well, that's some some story. So, just in your master's uh, research project, what did you find in in that? What was the kind of did you find anything of significance? Or yeah, yeah. Um, so, like going back now, what I'd love to do is actually repeat that study, knowing what I know now. You know, it's like I, at the time I didn't really have that much training with regard to like you know methodologies or. Um, statistical analysis so the the analysis I did was quite basic Um, but what we found was that your motivation for 
for porn use is really important into how that's going to affect how you feel. So if you're watching it just to masturbate, so just for sexual arousal or even with your partner in order to, you know, to like explore new things with your partner, um, for most people that will have positive implications with regard to how they feel about their genitals. So it might, you know, it might be that they associate watching porn with having an orgasm or being able to um, get like sexually excited. So a lot of people consider, consider that a good thing. Um, but then on the other hand, one thing that came up as a significant finding was people who use porn as a source of sexual information or a source of sex education, they were more likely to feel bad about their genitals. Now, it was a cross-sectional correlational study. So it was, you know, data collected at one point in time. So we don't know which direction, you know, that our findings are, are going in. Um, but I suppose it, it kind of makes sense. And, uh, you know, some of my studies that I've published recently go into this in a, a lot more detail. I mean, I think for, you know, for anybody, if porn becomes your only point of reference for sex or, you know, it's your main source of information, it might, depending on the porn that you're watching, yes, there is some really inclusive, varied, you know, porn, but the large majority of free accessible mainstream porn um, that young people are watching is kind of portrays like standard sort of idealized bodies, you know, where you know, slim white women with large breasts, um, men with larger than average penises, nobody has any pubic hair. Um, some people, you know, a lot of people, yeah, wouldn't have any pubic hair. A lot of people's genitals wouldn't reflect maybe the average. So if that's a place that you're going to get your information and you're, then you're looking at your own body, of course you might think that there's a discrepancy there. Um, whereas what I also think though, you know, that we can't, we can't blame porn for being like that. It's just porn, you know, we don't, we don't say, we don't give film and TV the same sort of slack that we give porn. You're like, oh, the relationships that you see in TV are so unrealistic. You know, you don't watch the notebook and you're like, oh, you know, they shouldn't be showing these glorified, you know, beautiful couples having this happy ever after. That's not what real relationships are like. But we do that for porn and we get out about it all the time. Um, but we don't do that for movies because we can contextualize information, you know, about relationships because we all have relationships, we see relationships. Um, but with when it comes to sex or like movies about sex, porn, we don't have a point of reference. Um, and that's really the issue when it comes to, you know, needing to talk about porn as in when it comes to sex education, because you, you don't get to see sex anywhere else and you see it in porn. So for a lot of young, you know, sexually inexperienced, naturally curious people, of course they're gonna go to that. Why wouldn't you? Do you know, if you, you, you're worried about being good in bed, oh, where can I find that out? Of course you're gonna go to porn to look at, okay, maybe this is how I give a hand job. Maybe this is how I do whatever. But it's, a, it's up to us then to, you know, educate young people that, okay, totally normal to be curious about sex. And if watching porn is something you wanna do, that's your decision, but don't let it influence, you know, your behavior or how you think about yourself or how you think about other people because it's completely unreliable as a source of, of information really. Um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So, it, so kind of jumping ahead, I guess. So is porn, is it, are the, are the, the effects of viewing porn, and I, I guess it really depends on the person who's watching it as well, but are they mm -hmm. negative? Is it like, is it worse than people think? What's the kind of, what's really, you know, what does research say about the effects of porn basically? So like, there's no, there's no one size fits all um, when it comes to porn. It really depends on, like, as you said, you know, the, 
type of predispositions that you have, uh, the type of content that you watch when you see it for the first time. Um, you know, if you're seeing, if you're predisposed to sexual to aggression, so you have aggressive tendencies, you maybe you might have a history of of bullying or you know getting in fights or you know sort of having these like maybe callous unemotional un traits and you have a tendency towards aggression you're more likely we know from the literature that a person would be more likely to seek out and watch what we might call violent or aggressive porn and they're more kind of accepting of it so it's sort of in that situation or in that context porn can reinforce existing beliefs that they have about violence they already think that violence isn't that much of a big deal. So then they might see violent behavior, not just in porn, but in video games and TV, anywhere, and think like, oh yeah, that aligns with how I think. So it's just gonna reinforce them in that regard. Um, same with, you know, body, with um, body image issues. If somebody has um, body dysphoria or they have, you know, some major concerns about their bodies, they, they might compare themselves with every person that they see in the media. So if they're looking on Instagram, um, you know, at, at weightlifting models or whatever, you know, they're going to, they're going to kind of compare themselves to those bodies. Same thing if they watch porn and they're seeing a certain type of body type as well. So porn, like what we know from the literature is that on its own, porn isn't going to cause any real problems for the vast majority of people. Um, it can reinforce some existing problems, sure, definitely. Um, but say for a teenager, you know, if, if it's not a, an aggressive teenager, if they see, a, um, they come across a, like a violent porn scene, it's not going to all of a sudden make them go out and sexually assault somebody. Um, but there is, I suppose, where it can kind of become a bit more complicated is the the amount that somebody really relies on porn, you know, so there's this I suppose what people might call porn addiction um but us just with our researcher hats on we're kind of we're slow to call it an addiction because it doesn't it doesn't kind of um your the brain doesn't respond to porn in the same way that it does to you know gambling or alcohol or, or drug use for people who are addicted to those things so there's um basically a um, the um, a brain, so the brain kind. There's this something called the P300, um, which is like a, a a neural network in the brain, and that becomes activated in people who say if you're addicted to alcohol, P300 become activated if you talk about alcohol or if you see alcohol and you're addicted to and you're addicted to it. Same thing doesn't happen for porn. So we're we can't say that the two two models aren't the two models aren't the same. Definitely, people are can become reliant on porn. And I think that's what people mean when they say porn addiction, but I'm probably just being a bit too pedantic about this. Um, but yes, people can absolutely become reliant on it. Um, and for some people, you know, that's fine. If it's not bothering you, then that's okay. You know, really how you define a dysfunction is really up to you. If it's a problem to you, then it's problematic. But if it's not, then it's not. Um, but then a lot of people might feel morally um sort of maybe disturbed by the fact that they're finding it really difficult to cut down the porn use and what's interesting is that normally people who have more conservative backgrounds 
are more likely to say that they're addicted to porn, say, from, than those who are actually more accepting and have kind of broader or more liberal sexual values. So it's just, it's, it's interesting in that, say, if you have a religious or a conservative background, um, maybe you're more likely just to say that your porn use feels out of control, um, even if it may, may not necessarily be out of control at all. Um, so yeah, like, as I was saying, that there's no, you know, one size fits all with this. <clears throat> um, we know that it's associated with lots of things, you know, depending on the content that you watch. So for young people, if they watch a lot of mainstream porn that has, you know, the sort of dominant man and submissive woman, these can sort of reinforce ideas about traditional gender roles, you know, that the guy needs to be the one to get the girl and the girl needs to kind of play coy and give in to the man's advances. Um, but for the most part, you know, if it's what's interesting, we're kind of living in an interesting time now because we're there are people who have grown up about porn and watch it now. And if you know, it doesn't influence them in, in any way at all, you know, maybe they get some ideas or they're kind of exposed to something that they didn't know that they were kind of turned on by in the past or that they are turned on by. Um, but we're at a stage now where Yes, a lot of children, teenagers um, are watching porn. Are they, you know, maybe watching intentionally or watching it unintentionally or being shown it by their friends? Um, we don't know um, what the implications of that are going to be, really. Um, and it's very difficult to assess that long term. You know, if we want to, yes, we can do retrospective studies, and you know, I can ask you because you're an, you're an adult. Oh, like what age did you start watching porn, or what age did you, did you first see porn? And we can ask those types of questions and surveys, but we can't ask children about their pornography use because that would be completely unethical. So we're, we're kind of left sort of having to do these retrospective studies. Um, and we'll have a lot more information, you know, as we, as time goes on. Yeah, I feel like we're sort of early adopters of this, you know, uh, the, the time we're in the digital age we're in, where like social media as well and, and porn, and there's no kind of rule book or guidelines at all. So it's kind of just like an, ex an ongoing experiment and we'll only figure out the results, you know, later on down the line. Um, but is there any sort of, I don't know, I guess, any research-based things to do in terms of watching porn and things not to do, like maybe a certain age or any kind of things in the research that, you know, ways yeah. to interact with it for your, maybe your mental health or uh, for yeah, your well-being? Yeah, you know, def definitely. Like, I suppose it's, it's kind of like anything, you know, if you're, so we, when I worked in, in sex education, we would usually talk about these three golden rules for masturbation, and they kind of apply to porn use as well, because most of the time porn use accompanies masturbation. Um, but the first would be that you're not masturbating so much that you're hurting yourself. You're not masturbating so much that it's interfering with your everyday life. And then the last one was you're not masturbating so much that, what was the last one? Interfering with your everyday life. Would it be relationships that it's not interfering with your relationships? No, it's not that one because it's all to do with personal use. Why can't I think of that? Oh my God, I used to say it all the time. Um, it'll come back to me. But it's, you know, as long as you're, it's not interfering with your, with your life or it's not having a negative effect on your life or yeah, or your relationships. Um, and that can be a tricky one, you know, because for some people, they, they might really enjoy watching porn. Maybe it's the only way that they can masturbate or that they can kind of orgasm but their partner might have an issue with that you know their partner might see some people see it as infidelity 
other people don't. People have really differing views when it comes to porn use. Um, but generally, you know, if you're not, if it does, if you don't feel like compulsion to watch it, you know, if you feel like you can go without it, then that's good. Then it means you have a healthy relationship with it. If you feel like you can go without it, then it might mean that you need to try to take a break from it. Um, a lot of people kind of, researchers would sort of say to take a six week break if possible, but I don't know how much evidence there is to back that up, you know, kind of like breaking a cycle. Um, and it's kind of difficult to know where to go in Ireland anyway to get support you know if you're having problems with what you might call porn addiction or you're you know reliant on it and a lot of the sort of programs that aim to kind of get people through porn addiction and to get them out of it they're sort of tied with religious organizations and so it's complicated uh, but as long as you know it's yeah obviously not interfering with your everyday life you know, don't feel like you're exceptionally reliant on it. And as well that you're not watching any illegal content. You know, if, you're, if you feel like you're being drawn to illegal content, that being, you know, anything that features children, anything that features animals. Um, and then obviously certain kind of extreme, extreme behaviors. Now, people might be surprised that certain behaviors aren't illegal. Um, but you it's really a moral debate about what you're comfortable with, but if it's actually an illegal thing to film, um, then that's something you need to consider as well. And obviously, if you're finding that you're kind of veering more and more towards very violent, very forceful content, you know, there's a difference between aggressive sex, aggressive consensual sex and, and aggressive non-consensual sex or violent sex, um, you know, where someone is being forced to do something um, it's not the same as someone being spanked, um, even though they might, both might be understood as like aggressive per se. Um, but if you find that you're, you know, trying to find content that's unregulated and that wouldn't be on mainstream sites, that would be an issue as well. And to tr try to get some um, uh, some counselling or some help about it, because it's a lot of people, you know, might have these issues or thoughts and they just don't know where to go and they might be really embarrassed because it's to do with sex and people are just awkward and it comes talking about sex in general. But now I think more than ever, we, um, it, you know, it's a lot easier to access people in different countries. So just because you live in Ireland and you have, um, you know, you're struggling with your pornography use, there are excellent sex therapists in the UK and Australia and the States that you can do a Zoom call with now that maybe we mightn't have considered in the past just because we're limited here, you know, with regard to kind of sex therapists and that kind of thing. There are a few, but there aren't that many. Um, you know, you can go further afield and, you know, do it that way. So definitely don't, I suppose, for people that don't, shouldn't feel stuck. Oh, cat falling off the couch here, sorry. Um, yeah. Got it, yeah. I was going to say, what are the services available for people if they wanted to talk about it? Because I feel like it's very taboo to talk about, but I... I don't know, what are the statistics of adults that watch porn? Do you know any idea? Because I feel like it would be, you know, a, very, a lot higher than, yeah, most people. Yeah. Oh yeah, like well young, so it tapers off, kind of, you have to contextualize it really. Young adults watch loads of it. Um, people in relationships watch less than people who aren't in relationships. Uh, 
as you get older, you watch less. But most people, most people watch it. Um, I did a study a couple of years ago. I think we had maybe 2,000 participants from NUIG. And I think it was like 97% watch porn. Well, it, maybe they don't watch it regularly, but they had seen it. And some would say that they watch it a lot. But like 70% of young men watch porn at least once a week um, in Ireland anyway. So yeah, people watch it a lot. Like, and that changes, you know, depending on what's going on in your life. And you know yourself, like if you're stressed, you might be less likely to go and exercise. If you're stressed, you might be less likely to feel like you want to masturbate and watch porn. So I mean, it really varies, but a lot of adults, yeah, all over the world will, will watch porn, yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah, the majority of people do watch it, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then what I hear people saying is, like, the more they watch it, the more progressive it gets. So they watch, like, I don't know, softcore. Do you mean, like, the kind of slippery slope? Yeah, I've heard, I've heard people say this, where it's like, I feel like it's people who watch it very regularly, like, you know, multiple times a week, and they're like, they're kind of, kind of reminds me of like almost like coffee or something someone who drinks coffee they need more coffee to get the same awake type of feeling so people uh, who watch porn more regularly they need to watch a different type or more you know they go from softcore to hardcore to get the same i don't know thrill from it is that true no, or I, is that... I, I, so it's not necessarily true um for, for the vast majority of people um i suppose now we don't really have the luxury of you know looking at studies where we can say oh they started off on softcore because nobody looks at softcore anymore like nobody's gonna buy a magazine and you know that's just non-existent anymore so all porn is hardcore porn um but with regard to kind of yeah variety and stuff it doesn't you know yes people want variety same way that you want variety in your life and all the other aspects you know you're not gonna have chicken and rice for every meal that you have you know you want variety like trying new food the same with your kind of sexual appetite i guess just because you're say you like watching oral sex doesn't mean that you're going to end up watching absolutely bananas stuff down the line you might yeah you, you might end up broadening um you know your understanding of what you're interested in and pe a lot of people say that the porn has kind of helped them to do that in some cases but for a lot of people you know they'll kind of stick to the same they they're not going to watch the same video over and over again that's for sure um but it this whole kind of slippery slope thing it's not it's not really backed up by evidence so it doesn't there's no evidence to show that if you start watching you know boyfriend and a girlfriend having you know slow consensual sex that you're if you watch it every day you're going to end up watching um, something really extreme and really violent uh that doesn't happen you know for people who are typically functioning and they don't have any kind of predispositions to aggression or any kind of maybe psychological problems that would um, lead them to make to choose content that a lot of people might find really disturbing there so i've lost my train of thought now what was i saying um the progressiveness of porn and you know they start yeah. kind of soft <laughs> thank you it's like yeah cash <laughs> kind of claw my foot and i was like oh gosh okay um so yeah like it's there's people often make that claim for whatever reason you'd hear that in, in like in the news a lot but it's not founded on any research evidence yeah there's like i think it was a study that was released a couple of years ago by short and seda uh, maybe 2018 2019 um that there like there hasn't been this increase in demand for vi more violent porn and if that 
was and that's you know from a content analysis of the, all of the top Pornhub videos over the last de decade or something like that and if there was um, you know an increase in demand we'd see it in the type of porn that's being made so if more people were needing more and more extreme stuff we'd be seeing more and more extreme stuff being hosted on Pornhub and that's not happening good good to hear you wouldn't like to think that's happening um, yeah. so in terms of like sexual education is is porn where a lot of people learn about sexual education and is it like a useful tool for sexual education or what would your opinion be or it is not say? useful um for young people it's not it's not useful as an educator for somebody who doesn't have any knowledge about sex it's really use it's great then for other people who you know want to explore explore their sexuality and you know, I'm not saying that all porn is bad, definitely not, um, but it's not designed to be an educator. It's designed as an adult source of entertainment. It was never intended to be an educator. It's never, you know, it's fantasy, it's extreme, it's entertainment. It's about, yeah, entertaining people. Um, same way that you wouldn't put a kid down and tell them to watch Fast and the Furious to learn how to drive. You know, it's completely, it's, fictional and it's fantasy and it's fun and it's exciting but it's not real life um yes some people have sex like that um but it's sorry what was your question again? is it a good educational tool is good, and is it how most people learn or they get their I, sexual I, education i think it's well it's not a good educational tool for for young people definitely i mean there are good things that people can learn from it uh say for a lot of a young um, LGB people, you know, who are kind of exploring their sexuality, a lot of them would say that they use porn to sort of figure out who they're attracted to and that kind of reinforce or help them to feel more comfortable in kind of their sexual attraction and their sexual preferences. But then on the other hand, you know, there's, it's so, it's so varied, it's so difficult to say, okay, it teaches this and teaches it doesn't teach this. But like there are some basics that you need, you know, when it comes to being. Um, not just a good sexual partner, but just having kind of good sexual values, um, you know, like respect for yourself and your partner, um, understanding of autonomy, um, having, you know, good boundaries, having good communication skills. You don't get any of that in porn. And that's not porn's fault, but it's definitely not the place to be learning about those things um, because they're the basis of every sexual interaction that you have, you know, with regardless of how many people you have sex with, whatever sexual behaviors that you do, you know, that good solid grounding needs to be there and people just aren't really being educated about that until maybe ty fifth year in ireland you know like people need to be, we need to be learning about consent about sexual boundaries about sexual pleasure about sexual functioning at a way earlier age so what so people know what's normal for themselves and um i suppose they know how to kind of have healthy sexual relationships but if they're relying on porn they're not going to get that information yeah, it wasn't built for that purpose as an education yeah tool. yeah exactly like yeah it gets a, it gets a bad rap i yeah. mean some porn is really bad it is um but a lot of porn is just porn you know it's really silly <laughs> it's like really dramatic and kind of funny yeah completely um, not reality at all <laughs> yeah so what is some of the like sexual education work you've done um or you're currently doing um to help people learn more about sex um, so, yeah, as I was saying, I started off working um, in sex ed, going around to schools and we had um, like a three workshop program 
that did everything from kind of puberty and reproduction all the way up to body image and uh, sending nudes, discussing porn, all of those different things. Um, but at the moment, I'm working with the Active Consent Programme and they deliver sexual consent interventions in universities and secondary schools. And yeah, I, I suppose it, it's great now to see that there are so many more options available in Ireland when it comes to, you know, all of these like educational interventions that are available. A lot of people are doing fantastic research and fantastic intervention development work. Um, but that's all really new, you know, like none of this is available. I don't know, I don't know what age you are, but like, as you said, you know, you had terrible sex education. So when you were in school, there was nothing. When I was in school, there was nothing. And it used to just be scare tactics, you know, like, oh, well, if you have unprotected sex, you're, you know, you, or if you have sex at all, you'll get pregnant or you'll get this big disgusting STI and show you a big scary infected penis picture. Um, so it, thankfully, you know, it's, it's developed a huge amount over the last couple of years and policy and legislation that's being implemented now that people are really starting to understand the importance of this. And it's not just good enough to say, you know, don't have sex, wait till you're married. It's just, it's so interesting, isn't it, that we like expect children and teenagers to be completely asexual. And then the second they turn into adults, then now we expect them to be completely sexually competent and to be able to communicate with their sexual partners and to know how to be respectful and to have good sex and whatever, when we haven't given them the foundation at all. So I think that we're seeing a significant change um, as, a, as a country. And I, you know, I'm kind of proud of Ireland in that we've changed quite quickly in that sense. You know, for a really long time, this was a very, very Catholic, very religious country. Um, the Catholic Church had, had control over our education systems. So it's only very recently, you know, that we've changed from, you know, discussing, you know, sex between two men as a sin to where we are now. So we have to kind of give ourselves a pat on the back to a certain extent to be like, look, we're not perfect yet, um, but really we've come on leaps and bounds and people are doing their best. And I think you can really see that now, you know, if you talk to parents, they really understand the importance of talking to their kids about, um, you know, their bodies and um, being safe and, you know, respecting and respecting one another and that kind of thing. And this, all of that information lays the foundation then for having these more kind of complex uh, conversations about relationships or sexual intimacy down the line. And yeah, I think people are doing it really well now. Yeah, thankfully, yeah. I remember hearing that, I think it's the American Psychological Association had uh, people who were gay or lesbian as like a psychological condition up until like the 70s. It was like a diagnosed condition. And now it's like the same sex marriage in Ireland, which is great, you know? Yeah, no, oh yeah, sure. It was, I think, yeah, it was in the DSM as a, a psychological like problem. Uh, sure, we were, it was only, was it was still up it was illegal to be gay i think up until like 83 or something in ireland was it 93 even god i have to double check that um but relatively recently yeah i feel, um, I feel like it yeah. might have been the 90s yeah maybe i'm thinking maybe maybe 1993 i don't know i'll have to double check yeah so just playing devil's advocate so we, we talked off air about someone was pushing back against the work you were doing with kids so let's say, for example, they're like, you know, you shouldn't be teaching kids about sex when they're young. What would they be missing out on? What are the benefits to learning about sex when you're younger? Like, why should kids learn about sex when they're, let's say, under 18? 
loads of reasons. Um, but I suppose, you know, some people's arguments would be that if you're, this is like really kind of archaic attitude or belief that if you start talking to teenagers about sex, oh, well, then they're just going to go out and have sex. But we know that that's not true because in countries where they've had like really detailed, comprehensive sex education all through primary school and secondary school, they actually have the lowest numbers of early sexual initiation, uh, teen pregnancies. So say in Holland, they get their sex education the whole way through school. Um, their age of consent is actually way younger than us. It's age uh, 13. But people have sex for the first time later than they do on average than we do in Ireland. Does that make sense? The people in Holland have sex at a later age than people in Ireland do. Is that relative, relative to the age of consent or just across the board? Across the board. So in Ireland, the average age is, I think, 17 for first time sex. Um, first time penetrative sex. I know that's very um, limited understanding of sexual behavior, but when it comes to like penis and vagina sex, just for example, uh, 17, but in Holland it's 18. So people actually, when they have all of this information, they can make these decisions and they don't need, they don't feel as pressured to have sex. You know, like I remember growing up, there was so much pressure to be sex reactive or to like, you know, first of all, so much pressure to like kiss somebody and then to do this and to this, to this. And it was like a tick the box thing. You're like, okay, now thank God I've done this thing. Do you know, how far have you gone? You know, whereas in, in a country that actually really understands sex and they don't see it as this sort of badge of honor, you know, it's just something that will happen if you wanted to when you're in a relationship with somebody that you, you know, you really like them or whatever, or not even if you're in a relationship. Um, so that whole idea you know that old trope of oh well if you talk to kids about sex then they're going to go out and have it no they're not uh, and we can see that um you know through examples like that but there's so many benefits um to talking about sex a okay from well from a very young age it protects children you know so say even not even talking about sex but calling you know different parts of the body the correct name so calling you know the vulva a vulva or a vagina or whatever you want to call it um calling you know penis a penis then there's no ambiguity about what that is um and children can and if they're not embarrassed about calling you know talking about that part of their body then if they're if they were ever in a situation you know where they might have been there might potentially be exploited or something you know they are a lot more capable at you know speaking about that using the correct language um but also god i mean they're at advantages in every way like as I was saying there it's not you know you don't just become sexual when you get married or when you turn 18 you know you have sexual a lot of people have sexual desire all the way throughout their lives you know like peaking you know in, or starting to become more aware of it during their teenage years and just because they're not meant to have sex at that age doesn't mean that they're not going to um and if you don't give them any information then you're kind of running into all of these risks you know where people are having um, babies where they're you know too young to support them um, financially emotionally it makes you know make a really significant change to their own life where they might be able to finish school so like if somebody's educated they have all the information they need they can be responsible and you know there's nothing what did I say like it's it's not up to us to it, it's it doesn't make any sense to be like, okay, once somebody is 18, now they have all of the, you know, 
now they're emotionally mature enough to have sex because I know I know 26 year olds who you mightn't think are emotionally mature you know so there's I think we need to give teenagers a lot more um what's the word they're you know they're, they're really bright and they need to be given a lot more credit they need to be you know they're they're yeah they're not adults yet they're still minors they're still children but they can be equipped with this knowledge we can talk to them about all of these things and yes they're not might not be ready to use it yet but it doesn't mean that we can't give them this information now and you know let them think about it and let them discuss it with their friends rather than kind of expecting somebody to to be a great sexual partner and to have all of these great sexual values and boundaries and be a you know perfect person when they become an adult it's just unrealistic yeah of course you can't just learn it overnight or in a relationship yeah. it might be kind of like too late well not too late but it just mightn't be the right time so um what's the kind of like the typical amount of sexual education that people get up to the age 18 is there like I know you're doing some work so you can talk about that as well but is it like very you know for example I got I can't remember any really so like um is is that the norm or do uh we'll talk about Ireland or America or wherever you, you want to go but is it typically that people get none or is there some or what's the it really depends i mean ireland is actually quite um quite liberal when it comes to sex education yes there are still some schools where you know they're not given that much detail um but it's part of the, our curriculum anyway to to cover puberty and reproduction contraception and stis um which is really limited and you know when it mostly just kind of talks about sex from a harm reduction perspective but, you know, in other countries, you know, I was I was doing like a week of guest lecturing in Zagreb in Croatia a couple of years ago, and they have no sex education at all. Um, I was really shocked to hear that it's still a very Catholic country. Um, and then obviously, um, I'd say most countries around the world don't have comprehensive sex ed. We're really lucky in Europe, you know, um, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, um, parts of America are good, but then, you know, in conservative states, there's no sex education at all, and they would... Um, advocate for you know there'd be a lot of abstinence only programs and what's interesting is that teen pregnancy is actually higher in the states where they um, use ab abstinence only interventions so they don't work you know you need to like, people need to know how to use condoms and and yeah I can't believe we kind of still have to have this conversation because in my mind I'm like god come on it's it's such a it's not a big deal you know that like people sh it's just part of being a human it's mad that this is the one thing to survive on this planet we need to have we need to have sex and people need to know about it at an earlier age oh i've got a second cat coming in here now i'm sorry sorry about yeah that. it's like uh <laughs> if you want to get kind of i don't know philosophical about it it's like some people say the meaning of life is to reproduce and if you think it's like if, if, it's, if it's that important our, our whole you know reason to be alive is just to produce and then you think about how much we know about that and how much there's guidelines education it's it's very scary it's like what the hell is going on where how yeah. did the disconnect come about you know so yeah like um, now well we, we need to have sex to reproduce but like we have it's you know it's part of our our anatomy these you know like pleasure is then built in us as well and 
yeah for some people they kind of just gotten around the kind of discomfort of talking about sex for reproduction but like we're meant to experience pleasure as well you know there's nothing wrong with it it's literally innate so why is this something that we still feel so awkward about it's interesting though you know like some countries are so comfortable talking about sexuality and they'd be you know really comfortable walking around naked in front of each other and things like that we haven't got quite there yet in Ireland um but the Irish weren't always like this so um I think it was like a pagans pagans were like really sexually liberated and they used to have like all of these like big like sex festivals and things like that it was really celebrated um and then when Catholic Church came into Ireland that's when things really changed sorry we didn't walk down here <laughs> and yeah so what effect do you think the catholic church has had on uh sex and sexual education in ireland oh god are we going there <laughs> well we don't have to we can avoid we'll no, skip we over can. we don't offend anybody but oh <laughs> uh, no like i mean uh, well obviously you know there's they had so much power for such a long time and they had a hand in our education, our healthcare, um, our government and how the country was run. So there's literally no part of our lives that wasn't touched by the Catholic Church for so long. And um, what really sickens me, though, is that they, you know, for a lot of people, yeah, they would, you know, they would make these like claims about, you know, morally, uh, corrupt women who have sex outside of marriage and to ended who are ended up being put in like in magical laundries and things like that um but they you know they like hid all of this terrible all of this like terrible abuse under the veil of piety you know, like oh no we're we're above it all when they were actually it was so insidious what they did um and there's so many people in ireland who've who've grown up you know having been abused by priests being abused by their family members being abused in general you know um but it's just maybe actually this is going to get a bit heavy i don't know if we should go there and um, we can edit this out but they because there were so many strict rules around the type of sex that you could have um and that was sort of instilled by the catholic church you know you can only have sex sex is between a man and a woman when they're married um so for a long time, any normal or natural feelings that people had when it came to sex or masturbating or whatever, they would feel so much shame because it didn't align with Catholic teaching. And that we have car we've carried that shame through generations, you know, it doesn't just go. Um, how our parents felt or how our grandparents felt about sex and how shamed or ashamed or embarrassed or however they felt about it they would have passed on some of that to their kids so our parents um they would have passed on some of their maybe insecurities or you know hang-ups or beliefs or whatever about sex to us as well and it's it's up to us now i think i feel anyway to to right a lot of those wrongs you know to start having these conversations at an earlier age to make it more of a normalized thing to talk about sex and you know just because we normalize talking about sex. It doesn't mean that you have to go around talking about your sex life to everybody, but it just means that you can, you have the knowledge and the information and the kind of skill 
to, that you are able to effectively communicate with future partners and then you know what you want for yourself so you're not you don't feel under pressure to participate in things that you don't want to do yeah you're aware of what you're doing and i feel like what you're just after saying is it proves the point that the abstinent first approach doesn't work because it's like i feel like irish history is just a point to prove all of that you know it just does not work and if anything it actually rebounds and blows back in your face a lot worse than being more open to talking about it like you're trying to be um and just normalize and talking about sex but um yeah it's i guess on the younger generations to kind of like change and and, and talk about it more but yeah and like we are seeing that you know um like what's even really interesting is that people are just so much more accepting and like embracing of difference but for such a long time it was oh you're weird if you do anything outside of the norm and um, when it comes to sexuality and um, i think the internet has helped you know to break down some of those barriers as well because you can literally access whatever you're interested in and you know like only fans or whatever people have a lot more kind of ownership over the content that they might choose to sell um you know um, that sort of reduces the um excessive exploitation in, in the sex industry as well so yeah there's um you know it's a complicated time that we live in but i think we're it's it's an interesting time as well because we're starting to see a lot of these cultural changes but at the same time you know just because just because we're seeing um changes you know positive changes in my eyes it doesn't mean that we can't revert back to old ways you know if we kind of we're seeing that in say in america at the moment you know they're trying to reverse roe versus wade um you're trying to kind of ban abortion again or outlaw abortion um so just because we make all of these legislative changes and and people's attitudes begin to change it doesn't mean that we can't go back the way as well so i think it's important that we keep having these conversations and keep the dialogue open then yeah it's absolutely crazy it's like we give women more rights and everyone's like no actually we're going to take that back now and it's like where's the research to say that's like an effective approach or where's the logic it's just like i'm not comfortable with that so we're going to take it back and it's yeah and that's it yeah that's it um there's you know there's no research showing well like i suppose you know limiting people from getting an abortion it doesn't mean that they're they're going to just stop trying to get one so a lot of the time people will who don't have access to abortion centers or whatever nearby or get it can't get it to their gp you know they'll go online to get tablets and that can be really dangerous um but yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting now that we have have abortion in Ireland after I kind of felt like we would, we might never get there. Yeah, it's very scary to think like if people want to do it and they know it's available, like I had a friend growing up who like flew over to England. It's like to get it done. Oh, it's yeah. Like, yeah, that kind of thing is really sad because it's like, you know, uh, it's, it's really their body to make a choice with. And I don't know, I'll, we'll go off the deep end here talking about this. But yeah, just it's kind of sad <laughs> to get what seems like I don't want to say a basic medical procedure, but like just it should be common to all of us not. And it's just sad to think that they have to go to England when it could be done here. I know. Yeah. And people are still, you know, still having to to go abroad or to order pill tablets online. Um, so if you think about it, Irish communities, a lot of them are really closely knit. So some people are still really concerned about going to their GP and having to get, you know, uh, like termination um, prescriptions or you know the tablets and stuff that you would take 
because they're worried that that person might relay that information to somebody that they know and so this you know, we still have a lot of barriers to get over for sure yeah um so speaking of overcoming barriers you had your, your ted talk trying to educate the people so can you talk <laughs> yeah. a little bit about <laughs> what your ted talk was uh covering and um the topics that were involved in that yeah um so that was a couple of years ago now uh so it was really just about talking about how we can try to kind of make sex a little bit more normal you know like how can we make it a bit more acceptable to talk about it and make people kind of feel more comfortable having conversations about sex um and yeah god i haven't actually thought about it now in so long what's funny is that i've never i've never watched it because i hate watching myself present so i just have i i think i watched like the first two minutes and i was just cringing so i couldn't go back and watch it um i'd love to do another one and talk about um porn and like how we need to stop blaming porn for everything because we do oh my god we just blame anything that happens so it's porn's fault um if porn was involved in any way so i would like to do something on that um but yeah like i, I suppose a lot of what i would have talked about in my ted talk was you know getting parents to kind of prompt conversations with their kids for example because i think parents have this idea that oh if a kid you know if they have a question they're going to ask me that's not true you know if it's about sex they're going to be embarrassed and because they've learned to be embarrassed they've learned that there's a bit of a funny topic so they shouldn't ask about it um a lot of kids feel as well that they worry that if they're if they ask their parents about sex their parents are going to think that they're having sex because they want to have sex and that's not the case at all so a lot of it was kind of trying to prompt parents to kind of to develop the language and the kind of confidence to talk to their kids about it because the earlier you start then the better it'll be in the long run and it, you know i think sometimes parents think about having conversations about sex as being really daunting and yes it might be daunting if you're going from zero to a hundred so if you've never had a conversation now all of a sudden you want to talk about porn for example that's a big change but if you're starting off you know just talking about relationships and the normal healthy boundaries to do with yourself then you know the conversations that follow that can be so much easier um but it's lots of little conversations rather than you know one big the talk that a lot of people would kind of talk about yeah yeah it's built up into their talk as if it's like you know open and shut we just have this one conversation you're going to learn yeah, everything. everything you need to know <laughs> it's like at 15 or 18 or whatever age you're going to learn it all but you still have like whatever 60 50 years of life left after and that one conversation <laughs> yeah. is going to carry you through all those years <laughs> yeah um so just in the the consent report you have the sorry my phone just went off randomly <laughs> um so in the consent report you had it said uh 63% of males and 71% of females, um, they were dissatisfied with sexual education they received. So um, is that something that is like, so since that report, is that something that's still the case? Are people like still dissatisfied with the level of uh, sexual education they received from, from your experience or? Yeah, like it's hard. Sex education's definitely gotten better, but in, there seems to be like, a small percentage of schools that are really trying to up their game, you know, and to teach really good comprehensive sex ed. Um, but there's still loads of schools who don't get, who get barely any. So it's very, I'd say a lot of people 
are still not happy with the sex ed that they get. Um, but it's very difficult as well to um, be able to answer every question that a young person has. You know, for a lot of young people, you know, the, the anonymous frequently asked questions that we get, a lot of them will be about like, how do you do X? How do you do Y? Um, and that's not information that we can give somebody. You know, we can't be like, oh, well, you do this and then you do that. Um, and, you know, we tell them that it's all about communicating with your partner. And for a lot of people, that's a bit of like an anti-climatic answer. You're just like, oh, that doesn't really answer my question. Um, so I think that there are, you know, people will probably go to porn to learn, say, about behavioral things if they're not being taught in, uh, in sex education or if they're not getting that information elsewhere. And they just then need to know, they need to have enough information that they realize that what they see in porn might not be reflective of what their partner might want in the future or what they have to do. Do you know? I think there's people might often, you know, there's the same sort of behaviors in porn. You know, they, they start off doing like oral sex and then they go to vaginal sex and they go to anal sex. And people kind of think that this might be like the template to sex. So this is how you do sex. And then I might be feel, feeling like really worried about having to, you know, have anal sex or whatever. And um, so they just need to know that that's, although they might see those things, they need to have the skills to kind of think critically about it and to acknowledge that, okay, it's okay to, you know, decide what I want to do sexually when I'm ready and to kind of talk about it, to have the, those basic communication skills so that they can discuss it with their partner. But I'd say, unfortunately, a lot of people are still going to be unhappy with their sex ed. Um, there are some great programs and we're really starting now to, you know, consent has come to the forefront and when it, it's actually you know, from a like a top-down position, like from, from government are really getting behind rolling out consent education workshops and classes and schools. And that's a huge step forward. So it's great to see, it's great to see all of these changes. Yeah, as in, I guess that's why there was the need for the whole consent report. Um, so could you just yeah. talk a little bit about consent, why you needed to do a report on it? And uh, is the SMART, is that an acronym or is that just it's a smart consent report. So smart was an acronym and I cannot remember for the life of me what it stood for. It was really long. And I think we kind of scratched that in the end. Um, so yeah, the smart consent workshop um, was how it started. Um, and now we're called the active consent program. Um, so we do like yeah, the workshops and all of these kind of large scale uh, surveys. So we had to do the, the sexual experience survey because there were, were like anecdotally lots you know lots of people reporting assaults you know like one in four women one in ten men um, and those findings are reflected in our data as well um, but we wanted to see how you know con consent our kind of attitudes towards consent um, were associated with those those experiences and we I suppose we kind of needed to see how many people had like positive or kind of problematic attitudes when it comes to, to consent or rape myths so that we can use that information then to develop interventions, you know, to give people accurate information about what consent is. Because I think when you ask somebody what consent is, they would say, oh, you know, it's giving someone permission to do something sexual or whatever, but it's not that straightforward. You know, it's not black and white. It's, it can be ambiguous, especially when you bring drug and, drugs and drink into the situation. So it's really the what the workshops that we're doing now is really giving people the space to think about the type of kind of situations um, where consent might be a bit blurred and how to 
um, I suppose how to do the right thing in those in those situations and how to seek support, you know, if things go wrong or how to intervene if you see somebody acting inappropriately um, and things like that. But also it's mainly about giving people the confidence to communicate with their partner, but also an understanding that people perceive consent cues differently. You know, some what I might think is, oh, yeah, that person's really coming on to me. Somebody else might see it in that way at all. So it's about being like on the actual consent program it's all about trying to share the message that you need to be really really clear in your intentions um and then hopefully that way there won't be any ambiguity because it's where it's in those ambiguous situations those kind of gray areas where things can go wrong yeah so i i attended one of those workshops when i was in nui and i found it very useful and that's kind of what led me to have this uh, episode what are some of the things that you try and teach the participants in the consent workshop or you know you try to get across to them by the end of the, the workshops um okay so we we start off um trying to explore where students on students understanding of consent really and we have a really helpful acronym um consent is omfg so consent is ongoing mutual and freely given so ongoing in that it's continuous so just because you consent at the beginning doesn't mean that you can't retract it and that you have to kind of constantly check in with your with your partner to see if they're doing okay, that it's mutual, that both people are into it, and that it's freely given. So it hasn't been coerced. Um, or, you know, you haven't been kind of pestering somebody to such an extent that they eventually give in, you know. Um, so as long as consent is OMFG, we, we start off with that. And then using that model, that consent is OMFG, we get people to read um, these short stories or vignettes, and they have, you know, they might have like, two guys who are hooking up or a guy and a girl or whoever in a story and um, we get the students to work in small groups to read the stories together and to identify whether or not they thought that that was a consensual story and what was interesting is there's a um, there's usually you usually see a gender difference in how those stories are interpreted that guys usually think I think it's like 66 percent of guys in one of the stories and only 40 percent of girls thought that the story was consensual now I'd have to kind of read the story out to you, um, but it's, it's just interesting to see that there is that discrepancy there, that guys might be more likely to think that there was a sexual intention there than girls. Now it's not, that's not it across the board, but it's um, these kind of points that we get the participants to reflect on, you know, that the way that you interpret something doesn't necessarily mean that other people see it the same way. Um, and then we challenge some social norms about sex. Um, so we get people to sort of, think about um what are the social norms activities that we do i'm trying to think of we we use some of our data um so we kind of read out some statements about you know the importance of consent and you know whether or not people believe that that statement might be true like okay i think consent is important and we might ask them then do you think other people think consent is important and usually people are people score high on the first question so they they would say yeah i think consent is really important but a lot of them would think that their peers might think it's as important as they do so it's about challenging this idea of you know like okay yeah i think consent's important but i'm not going to speak up and talk about it because i don't want to be considered weird because my pals might talk about it or whatever whereas really everyone is everyone thinks it's important so it's just about kind of normalizing the discussion of consent and giving people that kind of empowerment and confidence to to know like, oh no, no, actually I am right. And this, I am doing the right thing, you know, when I'm kind of concerned about 
um, being very clear when it comes to sexual communication. So that's generally that's it, the intervention really in a nutshell, but we're, it's growing arms and legs. Oh my God, it's, we have theatre performances now, um, you know, that depict different consensual um, scenarios and that's, you know, we use that as an educational resource as well. I'm doing kind of sexual media stuff and how consent is portrayed like in porn and in, on TV. Um, we're doing workshops in schools. It's just, yeah, <laughs> it's ever yeah. growing. We need a bigger team. We've got loads going on. Yeah, I, I'd imagine. And that difference, uh, the 60, 40% between guys and girls, that shows the need. If, if it's not the same, it shows the need for consent. Um, 100%. And you know, you yeah. hear, uh, I don't know how would you would describe maybe like a myth or um, that asking for consent kind of kills the mood is like that's I feel as though it's like I, you know the question I would ask is like what's the downside to ask for consent and it's like you know then you're everyone's on the same playing field then um, is that something that you hear from participants or people in the workshops that it kills the mood yeah like that is something that people would say you know like oh yeah well I don't want to ask for um consent because it you know might ruin the mood but if it ruined the mood then the other person really didn't want to have sex in the first place do you, do you know um so if i think a lot of people are afraid of being rejected but i'm sure people will be more afraid of being accused of assault you know so it's really just about normalizing that it's okay to ask because you don't want to be like people most people who get involved in you know who are um, charged for with sexual with um, sexual assaults or sexually violent behavior they didn't intend to go out and assault somebody um, but it's this lack of communication um, you know cha a change in behavior when they're drinking not um, not understanding boundaries pushing things too far not understanding that their coercive behavior is coercive and um, taking advantage of people when they're drinking so there's loads of stuff going on there um, that people, you know, you don't associate that with your sort of stereotypical understanding of what a rapist is, you know, like someone who jumps out of, at, from an alley in, at nighttime, you know, that's kind of how we think about it. But it's actually a lot more subtle than that. And unfortunately, it's these subtleties um, that people just don't, they don't kind of may, might not consider them to be as, as important. Um, but yeah, it's, I guess what we're getting at with in our interventions or consent workshops is we're raising awareness around like okay how are all like how are lots of different factors how can they lead to ambiguities and how can we counteract those yeah it just gives certainty to the situation when it's needed and as i've gotten older i've talked to more friends and uh, women especially about sexual assault and it's like you know i would have thought growing up oh it doesn't happen or it's very rare or you would know the type of person that does it and it's like not at all it's like who's gonna who's gonna open up and talk about it or you know um it's just it isn't talked about at all so what are like the rates of assault do you, do you know by any chance um like is there research on that yeah well so what our study that the sexual experiences survey there um dr lorraine burke spearheaded that and it was the rest of our team and Patrick McNeila. we all we all co-wrote the report um they i think it, it was one in four yeah, one in four female students and one in 10 male students um, and I think one in four non-binary students um, now that's at college you know where there's a lot of drinking a lot of sex 
lot of socializing. So that's not reflective of the population. Um, but the statistics overall, you know, from really massive international studies is one in four will be assaulted in their lifetime. That's crazy. That's so sad. It's crazy. And it's really, you know, what's even sadder is that we are still living in a society where victims are blamed, that they feel like they can't come forward, that they feel like they're going to be judged um, and that they don't get the ad adequate support. So that's why I really like that's kind of that's why I'm, I'm staying in this line of work, because it's such a serious issue that has such, you know, physical and psychological implications on people. Um, and we need to you know, we need to stop it. You know, it needs to stop. Um, so the more we talk about it, I think the more guys talk about it as well is really important, you know, especially like within their friend groups, because oftentimes you might hear of situations going on where, you know, a guy might be, or not even just a guy, but like a person might be kind of maybe getting with somebody who's really, really drunk. And it's the friends, the friends who can step in and who can do something a lot, of, can do something about it, can really be the game changers there. Um, but it's so promising now to see guys speaking up about it um, and, you know, taking this sort of like no tolerance approach. Um, and like, you know, even the little things, like subtle things like maybe, you know, calling their friend out if they, if they make like, a, you know, a rape joke or something like that, because it's, it's systemic, you know, it starts out, might just be this small, you know, one person might think like, oh, it's just a rape joke. Um, it's not, it's not that big of a deal, but it's all of these little things that normalize how we treat people. Um, and I think guys have a huge role to play in this, you know? Um, so it's great to see like guys like yourself, you know, who are interested in like hosting podcasts and talking about it and bringing up these issues. Yeah. Um, it's funny you should mention calling people out. So sort of randomly, I was watching the Hardy books. I don't know if you've heard of those, the comedians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was a sketch where all the lads are just around, you know, just talking, joking or whatever. And then some guy basically kind of insinuates that he had non-consensual sex. And I don't know if you know the character Boo. This, this yeah. guy's, this guy's uh, image was blurred on the screen as well, which is very like sketchy. But anyway, the Boo is like, wait, hold on a minute now. He's like, let me get that clear. Is this what you're saying? It was non-consensual. And I was like, whoa, this is the, the, the Hardy Books episode is from like 10 years ago. So I was like, oh, wow. I doubt that he intended or they intended to be kind of talking about that, but it happened. I was like, very like, he's completely doing the right thing. It's really awkward. The guy is kind of like, oh, no, no, I didn't mean it like that or whatever. And it's like, yeah, no, this is, it's a good conversation. It's a good thing he called him out. And um, Oh, wow. Okay. I'll have to go and find that actually. I'll send it on after, yeah, but it was very interesting to see. And only for that, I'm kind of more aware now that I'm older and I've talked more about it. It's like, oh yeah, I noticed it, you know? Whereas I, mm. I watched that episode years ago and probably never thought much of it. Yeah, it was the same in like loads of movies. What was I watching recently? Oh, Star Wars, like one of the first Star Wars. And um, yeah, there's just like all, so many examples now when you start thinking in this way, you see it everywhere. Um, that like, the guy you know he like forces himself on on somebody but they portrayed in a like, really romantic way he's like oh he just really loved her you know when he's actually just forced himself on her there's so many examples like that from hollywood god it's, it's or, or even that women want that they want a guy to force themselves on them i don't know where that comes from and it's like maybe because it's such a male dominated world that we live in and it's like i don't know it doesn't sound consensual to me if that's what's happening yeah um we, like that's kind of what 
the sexual media intervention that I'm developing, the online intervention for teenagers, you know, we're kind of tapping into a lot of how the media portray all of these things. It's so, oh, it's so damaging. You know? um, the like glorifying of like sexual coercion. Like even when the example I thought that, that we came across when we were developing it was from the notebook. And like there's this scene from the notebook that's considered to be like so romantic and so like, oh, he's really wearing his heart in his sleeve and like showing her how much he loves her and wants to be with her. <clears throat> but the the girl in it, Ali, um, she's like on a Ferris wheel with another guy on it. She's on a date. And Noah, who fancies her, um, Ryan Gosling, he runs up and grabs onto the Ferris wheel while it's running, uh, while it's going. And they're like in the middle of the air and he's hanging from these the bar, like in front, sitting stand, or in front of where the, those people are sitting. And being like, look, if you don't go, you know, like I really want you to go on a date with me. And she was like, are you crazy? Like, get down. Um, and he was just like, let's go one one arm, you know. And he was just like, oh, please. Like, I were basically forcing her into going on a date. Um, and if she doesn't, he's threatening to kill himself, basically, you know, to let himself drop to the ground from the Ferris wheel and crush his body and die. And that's considered, like, when we think about, like, romance movies and we think about that scene as being really romantic when it's actually so problematic you know it's so coercive but it's interesting in how film and media they can just present something in such a way that makes you go like oh isn't that lovely oh he really likes her where it's actually like really sending a bad message you know and we see that all over the place it's not it's not just porn doing these kind of things yeah celebrating a very inappropriate way to behave it's like what I feel like women would never do that they're way more sensible than us guys and like it's almost <laughs> normal for a guy to do something like that and it's like when you look at it on the on you know you take a step back and you look at it, you're like that's clearly the wrong way to you know I guess try and uh go on a date with somebody but for some reason it's almost accepted or promoted it's very bizarre oh no it's beyond me it's for another day yeah um so just going back to what you're currently doing in your research, is there anything you're currently working on or coming up that uh, you want to speak about? Um... Um, so the study that I just published there, I was kind of, um, I'm probably going to be doing like a good bit of like media stuff about that after Christmas. Um, and that was a, we developed a measure to assess what young adults report learning about sex from porn. So I'm kind of interested in that, you know, and looking at well, what are the associations with that? So like, okay, if you say you learn a lot about what genitals look like or about sexual technique or about sexual exploration from porn, what are the implications of that? And that's the kind of route that I'd like to go down in the future. Um, but I'm also really interested in the, there's a huge increase in sexual choking um, going on in consent. So what started as consensual sex and then usually the male um, partner, um, you know, starting to choke his partner during sex. Um, more than likely this is happening because people are seeing it on porn because people certainly like that might be a practice say in bdsm community and lots of people aren't learning it through through that um so i'm kind of interested in looking at this huge increase in choking behavior because it's certainly something that people aren't discussing you know it's and and it's really dangerous there are ways to do it safely but loads of people are just kind of watching porn and thinking oh, okay choking something that might you know it's kind of taboo it's sort of kinky Maybe my partner will like it. Um, but then they're accidentally putting loads of pressure here at the front of the neck. And, um, you know, the partner can pass out. It's being used um, 
as a defense now in lots of kind of sex gone wrong murder cases. So I'm kind of interested in looking at that as well. Um, problem with me is that I, I've, I'm interested in too many things. So I really, I don't want to be doing loads of projects at one time. So yeah, I'm, uh, once this contract ends now, I'll have to have a good think about which direction I want to go in next. Yeah, I know the feeling I'm starting off doing a health podcast and I'm talking about sexual health and I'll be talking about nutrition or mental health and yeah, it's all over the shop, but uh, it's all, it all ties in. So uh, how does uh, sexual education, sexual health, consent, how does it all tie into your mental health? Like as in, uh, does it have a big impact, small impact? What, what are your thoughts on that? I suppose it's kind of cyclical in that like, you know, your, your mental health is going to, so if you're struggling with your mental health, you're going to struggle in lots of other aspects of your life as well. Um, so like your sexual functioning might be influenced, you know, you might be able to feel aroused or um, to like engage in intimacy with your partner. And again, like if you're struggling with your sexual health, you know, if you're really struggling with an issue when, in your sex life, that might impact your mental health. You might feel you know you might feel bad about it because um yeah you might feel like embarrassed or ashamed or whatever you might feel less of a man or less of a woman because you can't have an orgasm or whatever there's all of these things kind of tied into each other um yeah sex and mental health are hugely correlated you know there's loads of studies that show like if you're in um if you've high sexual satisfaction um that your mental health levels are higher as well so people who have more orgasms generally are happier uh, now, sex isn't all about orgasms, but if it's, um, it definitely helps, you know, if you are having orgasms, it definitely helps your mental health um, as a stress reliever. And normally, you know, I suppose because as a society, we place so much emphasis on sex and relationships so that you should be having good sex. I think this doesn't help, you know, if people are going through a phase where they're having bad sex, they're not enjoying it, or they've kind of gone through a lull or things aren't going well with their partner. And then that can kind of feed into how they feel mentally as well um so that yeah there's positives and negatives like in anything really um same as you know we were talking um before the interview like that certain things can happen in your sexual experience like you, you can experience something sexually that might have a really negative outcome on your mental health um same as, but then again you might experience something sexually that makes you kind of reawaken a certain aspect of of yourself that is really really positive to your mental health so it's yeah they're all they're all related yeah for sure um so then if someone wanted to learn more about you know sex or consent um or maybe how it ties in with their mental health like what are some of the resources available to people you know in Galway and I guess around the world um yeah there's lots there's loads of resources um so I first want to look up anything to do with like consent or any of the research that we're doing in NUIG, go to um, the active consent, active consent, I think at NUI Galway and you'll find all of our stuff there. But there's loads of stuff online. There's Sexual Health West um, in Galway City. So they're a charity that do sex education programs. Um, there's loads of people doing, you know, um, sex ed stuff on Instagram or on TikTok now. Um, on OnlyFans, there's just, you can kind of get any information you want. Um, but it's about, I suppose, going to the good places to get accurate information as well. It's important. There's a really good website for teenagers called Scarlet Teen. Um, so if, teen if any teenagers or parents are listening, uh, that's a really good place to go. Um, but yeah, keep an eye on kind of 
updates from us anyway we're usually you know if we launch any new program there'll be something about it in the in the news or in like newspaper articles or on the radio um so i'll try to keep you up to date on those but there's the kinsey institute like there's god there's so much stuff you could probably go down a rabbit hole but what i can do actually is send you on um a list of resources and links afterwards that you can maybe attach to this yeah that'd be perfect i was going to say is there anywhere you want to point people to um yeah yeah so, absolutely i'll do that no problem brilliant is there anything you didn't mention that you want to cover or, or speak about before we wrap up i don't think so no I'm, I'm good how about you no this is just very informative and and good to know that there's a lot of science behind it and uh that you're doing like very important work and i think a lot of people learn from it because it's pretty hard to talk about but it's it's needed exactly yeah i agree no thanks so much for having me Great, Kate. Thanks very much.